Thanks for joining us now for KVC Arts, arts and entertainment as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. KVCRFM is in the on-air portion of our fall membership campaign, and as per usual, we have many, many thank you gifts to choose from at a variety of giving levels. Among the thank you gifts, tickets to see Trans-Siberian Orchestra when they come to Ontario in early December. They have both a 3 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. performance, and at this point, we have tickets for both. Go to kvcrnews.org support. And with that in mind, on this edition of the program, we welcome back Al Petrelli, musical director for and one of the guitarists with Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Al, before going into this year's tour of The Ghosts of Christmas Eve, any thoughts on the world of public broadcasting? Well, I mean, you know, you asked me this question, and the first thing that comes to mind was being a kid growing up on Long Island, you know, listening to FM radio, you know, in the 70s. And there was a radio station out there long before playlists were dictated, if you will. Radio stations could play local bands' music, you know, unsigned. And one of these radio stations in particular, a very good friend of mine who was the program director there, started a lot of careers by doing just that, by listening to what they called homegrown music. And that was an era when, you know, if you were making a demo tape and it was any good, you got it into this dude's hands. There was a good chance it going to get played on the radio, which is the most thrilling thing of all time as a young musician or at any age as a musician. To hear your song, your hard work, your art come through, you know, that 6 by 9 coaxial on a Pontiac dashboard, dude, those were the days. <laughs> well, that's true, and that's the wonderful thing about public broadcasting. Again, especially, I've been on the radio side for a little over 30 years doing this kind of thing, mm-hmm. and the biggest thing that I've always appreciated is, as a listener and as a producer of content, is that we bring you what you don't get on the rest of the dial. It's kind of as simple as that, whether it's music or news. Exactly. And listen, when you think about it, the lightning strike that was the Trans-Siberian Orchestra started just that way. One DJ down in Tampa, Florida, really liked this song and he played it. The, and here we are, 28 years later. Did that start actually with the first TSO album, or are we talking about Sabotage and Christmas Sabotage. Eve? Sabotage. Okay. That, that song when it was just on the Sabotage record, you know, and then all of a sudden, boom. <laughs> My God. Wow, and that's what and, kicked it off. Yeah, and think about it. Like, Tampa is known as the lightning capital of the world, <laughs> and that's where the lightning strike occurred for us. So it's like, yeah, that worked. <laughs> Can't refuse that one. Oh, wow. The Ghosts of Christmas Eve. TSO toured this one last year, and I know better than to ask what's different this year because you don't really know until two complete Trans-Siberian orchestras descend upon Nebraska. And so uh, how many people are we talking about coming into Omaha at one time there? About 300. My God. Wow. Yeah. We'll cut it in half per band, okay? Okay. You know, but, you know, you have 90 people on the crew, 20 people in the band. You got managers, accountants, you know, truck drivers, bus drivers. It's basically like, you know, 300 people like end up converging on Omaha, Nebraska within a 48 hour period and live there for close to four weeks. And we've been doing the same thing for, I think, 17 or 18 years. By the way, random side note. Yeah. Congratulations, you're hitting show number 500, I hear. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. God so, bless. Uh, good for you. So nice I'll milestone. Talk. You Jeez. deserve it. Thank you. I appreciate that greatly. And you've been a huge part of it. And, well, we'll talk about more on that one a little bit later. But, Okay, so I just referenced two complete Trans-Siberian orchestras. If you would please elaborate on that reference to two different bands, for lack of a better word, uh, what it is, and importantly, I think, why it is, or when it happened and why. Well, 1999, somebody dared my boss, Paul O'Neill, to do a couple <laughs> live shows. 
Now, we did not do any live shows prior to that. You know, we were basically recording some records, selling millions and millions of copies. We had done a movie, like you had just said, you know, PBS grabbed and played it, and that added to what was becoming this monstrous situation. And I felt almost like I was in the Steely Dan version of Christmas. <laughs> we don't have to tour. We're just going to make records. This is awesome. Yeah. So anyway, long and short of it, 99 rolls around, and Paul looks at me and goes, uh, what do you think about touring? I'm like, with who? <laughs> you know? He goes, no, with this. I'm like, what? I said, okay, yeah. I said, I'd love to, but, you know, we had like 35 different people come in and sing on this record, a bunch of, you know, orchestra members. It's like it's a pretty big undertaking. He's like, yeah, but we could do it. I'm like, then let's do it. And we went into rehearsal and we worked it all out. We incorporated narration, poetry, underscoring this, that, the other thing, a string section. There were seven cities on that itinerary, and I think three shows in Cleveland, and then like Boston, Philly, and New York, Chicago, so on and so forth, right? And we came home. It was awesome. It was sold out. I mean, the show's really sold out in like minutes. It was so cool. Mm. Anyway, so he goes, all right, let's go back. We'll start working on another record, whatever's going to go on. A couple months later, he's like, you want to go on tour again? <laughs> and I'm like, absolutely. He goes, yeah, here's the problem. I got the same seven cities want us back, and also they want shows in Seattle, Denver, Phoenix, El Paso. <laughs> I'm like, um, boy, that's a lot of driving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And we only got, like, I don't know, at the time it was between, what, Thanksgiving and a week before Christmas was, like, the window we were looking at then. I'm like, oh, gosh. that's a lot of miles to cover, bro. He's like, no, we're not going to do it with one band. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> he goes, I'm going to stay in the 13 colonies with the original band. You're going to do the rest of the country. And I'm like, with who? He goes, I don't know. We'll figure it out. And I'm like, oh, here we go with the figuring it out part again. <laughs> and really, as light of it as I'm making it, that was kind of it. It's like, well, everything that this man has set out to do has been a huge, huge success. So if he says we're going to put a second band together and he's going to allow me to kind of like take it around the rest of the country, all right, cool. And that's what happened. And so each band had a 24-foot box truck and two buses and a fog machine. And, <laughs> and here we are decades, decades later, you know. And last year when I rolled into town, 21 tractor trailers and 12 buses, I think. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no joke. Oh. Not each band, mind you. But wow. again, keep in mind, this has grown up like one of your children or one of my children or whatever, you know. Infancy, diapers and, you know, hiney wipes and uh, cribs and nightlights and formula and bottles and whatever. And then toddlers and then adolescence and then young adulthood. And now it's about to hit 30 years old. Yeah. It's grown up magnificently over these three decades, but it started out really small. We paid very close attention to it, nurtured it, fed it, made sure it was safe. And every time it was presented back out, we made sure, figuratively speaking, it was very well-dressed and behaved. Then everybody would just look and go, wow, grew up from last year. Wow, it's bigger than last year. Wow, it's amazing. It's better than last year. What an incredible analogy. I mean, you've talked about watching your child grow up before, but you didn't put as much into it in the past. That was really cool. That was a great narration of that type Thank of thing. You. Yeah. Listen, I've been, you know, this has been a very interesting year for me, being a father, in all the positive ways I could explain it to you. But, you know, since COVID has subsided a little bit, I'm back to spending more time with, especially my three older boys who were all moved on and spending a lot more time with my daughters and not worried about, you know, like did the world just end and all that stuff. So it's given me a kind of a fresher approach. And selfishly, two of my oldest children, one of which just made Master Chief in the Special Forces. Oh, excellent. And the other one just got accepted to the Space Force. So he, mm. he left the Navy after 10 years, and now he's going to go be Buzz Lightyear. So, <laughs> you know, I got a lot of pride in my heart, especially this year. 
You had one of your sons, he was in the Ontario show two shows back. Yeah, that's the one who just made Master Chief. He's a Coronado with the Navy SEALs. He's been training with the Army Rangers down in Bragg. So he's become that dude. And I'm very proud. I'm terrified. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and I got the other one who's like, you know, to infinity and beyond now. So uh, you know, God, that's why God invented after hour martinis. Yes. For the Ghost of Christmas Eve, let's hear the storyline, please. This is one sure. that I will see and or hear every year and never tire of it. You know, thank you so much for saying that because that's why you and I are on the phone after almost 30 years since this thing opened its eyes. The long and the short of it is Paul's love affair with great literary works, you know. He loved writers. He loved great writers. And he loved Frank Capra. Okay? So here we are, this young teenager, a little girl, 14 years old, give or take. It's Christmas Eve. She's run away from home. She's scared. She's tired. She's lonely. She ends up busting through a boarded-up window in an old abandoned movie theater. And actually, when we filmed this movie, it was in an old abandoned movie theater somewhere in, like, Jersey City, you know. Perfect. Really old, like, Art Deco era, really creepy and definitely in disrepair. But Paul loved the shadows and the vibe that it had, the energy, you know. Yeah. Anyway, this girl breaks into this theater, and it's Christmas Eve, and she's confronted by the caretaker of the theater, who was played by Ozzie Davis, wonderful actor who played the caretaker and was our narrator for that. And he takes her on this kind of journey. You know, things passed, very Scrooge-esque. You know, Ghost of Christmas Past, Ghost of Christmas Future, all that Christmassy kind of stuff. But very Paul O'Neill. And if you flip the card over, it flashes to the father, who doesn't know why his daughter ran away, doesn't care. He don't know what the fight was about. He wants his baby girl home safe. Okay, and then in very Paul O'Neill fashion, you know, we go through this journey together, and it's got a happy ending, and they're reunited, and all's good in the world. And there it is. Now, I've been reading Leonard Bernstein's biography oh, the past nice. month. Yeah, fascinating man, a pillar of the music world, and just an incredible, incredible talent. And I keep rereading the same quote, and it's really important, and I think we can apply it to Paul O'Neill. And he said, you know, a true artist, a true composer, is very accessible, but never ordinary. Oh. What a deep, short, eloquent statement that is. And I thought about it, and I was like, yeah. You know, I mean, okay, well, I'm going to take it out of context. Let's talk about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You know, the motif of the theme to that yeah. is so accessible. It's so easy for you and I to sing it to each other, right? Yeah. But it's anything but ordinary. Oh, yeah. You know, not banal in any way whatsoever. I mean, the melody just has stood the test of time for centuries now. Now, the orchestration and the whole thing around it is like genius on a different level. Okay. I'm going to use that same quote with Paul. I mean, the story is so accessible to everybody who listens to it, reads it, has watched it, but it's anything but ordinary. And I think that's part of his genius, you know? Absolutely. Everybody can relate to this story, you know, in a very unordinary manner. Yeah. Whether it's Christmas Eve and other stories or the ghosts of Christmas Eve, I used to confuse them, and there's a lot of crossover songs, but that's mm -hmm. also something to be addressed later. But one of the main driving points on both of these especially is that the fact remains is that, as you've put it, I believe, there's always that empty spot at the dinner table. Someone yeah. is away. It's, again, something we can all relate to. Yeah, it's so universal. You know, that's part of the universality of this work that we're talking about, you know, the art form that Paul created. You know, I mean, in my very bougie dining room, there is an empty chair that will always remain empty, you know, in memory and dedication and love and admiration and, you know, and missing whomever, you know, it is. And, you know, a lot of people have moved on from this earth, you know, and that's what life is, dude. You know, no way around it, you know. Right. But it's okay to be 
sad about it. That's, I think, one of the things that I learned from Paul. And one of the quotes that I will carry with me for the rest of my life and teach my children is, I would rather miss somebody than to have never had them in my life before. Mm. That's incredible. Truthful, you know? No, that's <laughs> and, right. and, and listen, I'm going to be 61 years old next week. And what I've realized at, at this milestone is that, God, I got so much more to learn, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> and so much more to experience and so much more to understand. And being with Paul for just about half of my life has taught me it's okay, man, just stay teachable. And you'll have it figured out just in time. <laughs> and hopefully be able to pass something on. We yes, always sir. Are. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. David Fleming in conversation with Al Petrelli with Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Back to the conversation in just a few moments, but in the meantime, this interview ties in directly with our fall membership campaign as one of the many thank you gifts that we have to offer this time around is tickets to Trans-Siberian Orchestra's performance in Ontario December 2nd with two performances to choose from, 3 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. Support KVCR today and reserve your tickets for the experience of Trans-Siberian Orchestra. More at kvcrnews.org slash support, or you can call 877-512-8843. Back now to Al Petrelli, one of the primary guitarists with TSO since the beginning, and music director for most of the time that they've been touring. Al, last year I had some friends see TSO for the first time, and among the many, many things that they absolutely loved was the versatility of the performers. So I'm going to turn this in the direction of, well, for example, Andrew Scott. Was he brought in as a vocalist, but then it turns out, hey, he can do supporting guitar as well? Yeah, kind of. So real quick, okay. Andrew, I met when he auditioned for us down in our recording studios in Tampa, right? Okay. I got to the studio, I don't know, they said, let him come in a little early, get comfy, and then you come in a couple hours later. And when I walked in... Here's this long-haired guy who looks like he was ready to play Tarzan on Broadway, <laughs> playing Guitar Hero on the TV in the lounge of the studio, jumping on the couch. And I looked at him, I'm like, really? And of course, he's playing like some Megadeth track. I'm like, uh-huh. Okay. You One know? of your old and solos I, on Tornado of Souls yeah, or something? something like that. I was like, really, dude? You're going to do that? All right, cool. And then listen, you know, he's become my brother over the decade yeah. and change. He's been with me. But, you know, he'd always walk around with a guitar, you know? Oh, okay. Whether he could play or not, you know, he knew some chords and he'd fiddle about. But I take great pride in if ever I'm asked by anybody to teach them something on the guitar or the piano or whatever instrument, I feel it's a great privilege to share some of my knowledge. And he's the one always asking me, hey, boss, you know, could you teach me how to do this? Could you? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And over the years, he became a better and better guitar player until one day I said, you just want to play a couple songs in the show? He's like, dude, could I? I'm like, Absolutely. Don't stand in front of me. <laughs> Just find the corner. Don't get too crazy yet, brother. And he started out playing some rhythm guitar. And then all of a sudden, I said, you want to play like the guitar solo or the harmony and, I don't know, Christmas Canon? He's like, yes. I said, hey, here's the part. I'll show you how to do it. Go practice it. If you can pull it off, it's yours. And why not? Why wouldn't you let these people like help them grow? Make them uncomfortable so they're growing, you know? Mm. I've always tried to keep everybody in a constant state of discomfort because when you're <laughs> uncomfortable, you're learning something. Wow. You know? 
And so he had to think about that part. And it's one thing to sit down in rehearsal on a folding chair and play it. It's another thing to play it in front of 14,000 people. Oh, good God. You know? yeah. And he came to the party. He's getting better all the time, and I'm really proud of him. You know, somebody told me years ago, if you're standing in front of somebody, a younger person, okay, remember to be the person that you needed at their age. Mm. Or you could have benefited from at their age. You follow me? When I was 16, I had that same thing happen to me when Steve Vai who was just the guitar player in the neighboring neighborhood or the town next to where I grew up, kind of took me under his wing and did the same exact thing. He's like, dude, check this out, try this. Or, mm. you know, I'd watch him play and I'd go, could you teach me like any of that? <laughs> you know? Wow. So, you know, why not? Why wouldn't you do that for somebody? Absolutely. My interview with Vi, by the way, on his most recent album, Still in Violet, uh, that was just so rewarding, just on a personal level. Uh, he and Adrian Ballou are people that I look at as they're not just playing or hitting notes or making notes, they're making sounds. They're creating sounds and exploring how to do that kind of thing. And it's just and keeping yeah. it musical. Yes. And keeping it wonderful and beautiful sounding. And yeah, listen, you know, Steve on a different level and I admire him not only for his musicality his musicianship certainly his guitar playing his composition but as a human he's extraordinary as well yes a nice guy and he's uh, an Italian from New York there it yeah. is oh, yeah. there you go yeah and isn't he the one that introduced you to uh, Randy Coven as well Mm-hmm. Okay, nice. Yeah, listen, oh the short story, or I'll make it as short as possible, is that Steve was in a, um, a local bar band on okay. Long Island, okay? okay? And they came from a town called Carl Place, Westbury, New York. I grew up in a town called Hicksville, which was the next town over. Steve left the band. He was going to Berkeley. There was an ad in the paper, guitar player needed for a local band, blah, 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 blah. I go audition. I get the job. Steve comes home five months later for Christmas break. We're introduced. Hi, nice to meet you great dude he's like man you play really good i'm like oh thanks so much and then he grabbed my guitar i'm like okay i'm embarrassed <laughs> you're awesome <laughs> anyway so he went back to berkeley he went to go work for frank zappa yeah. and what do you do you know you back then it's 1980 whatever year it is 82 83 80, yeah, 81, yeah. whatever yeah. and you write letters back and forth and you, you know he'd tell me what he's up to i tell him what i'm up to and then he joined alcatraz he had a solo record out and his career was really exploded but he was always my friend always that really good italian dude from westbury new york and, you know, introduced me to Randy Colvin. And when Steve left David Lee Roth's band, he told Dave that my replacement is on Long Island. And he gave Dave my name and phone number and literally, like, dropped me in the middle of that. And, I mean, again, just a great friend, a great human, but he was responsible for pretty much everything, or the beginnings of everything, I should say. I'm trying to think, when he left David Lee Roth, would, uh, would you have been with Asia at that point? No, no, this has got to be, I'm going to say it was late 88 or 89. He okay. just joined Whitesnake. I had played with a few national acts prior and was cutting my teeth in New York City. I had met Paul O'Neill in 1985. And, mm-hmm. you know, everybody was running around New York City trying to get sessions and jobs or whatever, you know, just like doing what we do. But I remember that it was, I'm going to say, late spring, probably 89, that I flew out to audition to Dave and, you know, met everybody in the band and went to his mansion, literally, in Pasadena, showed up. And at the time, Dave's like, you're my guy, Vi was right, you're in the band, we're good. I was like, oh, thank, this is awesome, you know. And then I flew back to New York and waited for him to call, waited for him to call. And then Greg Bissonette, the drummer, would call me on occasion and say, no, dude, everything's good. Dave loves you. You're in. He goes, you know, he's just, he's doing this movie. He's doing this. He's doing that. We're really not sure what's going on right now. And that went on for the rest of the summer. And I started to get a little disheartened. But, you know, okay, well, I guess, you know, hurry up and wait. And then I remember it was, okay, my 27th birthday in September. Greg called up and says, listen, you know, Dave is still on a holding pattern. 
but he goes, you know, Steve and I were out last night with Alice Cooper, mm. and both Steve and I both told Alice that if you need a guitar player slash musical director, you know, there's this guy, Al Petrelli, back in New York, who's your guy, and that was it. They flew me out, hired me on the spot. All right, that's when you... That was a really good six months. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of waiting and hoping, but, but then you ended a up with Alice Cooper, so that's cool, too. Yeah, I was his MD for a while. That's when he had that big, big, big album called Trash, and he had a huge hit called Poison, oh, yeah. and it was a world tour, and... Again, you know, life is an interesting journey, my friend, and I didn't realize it at the time. You just kind of go with it, you know, wherever the sure. current's taking me, I'm going. And little did I know that firsthand I was getting an education in theatrical presentation of rock and roll on an arena level. Oh, you know? yeah. And, you know, I'd worked with some singers before, fantastic, but when Alice was being Alice and he was singing, that was great. But when he put the straight jacket on and became Dwight Fry, mm-hmm. he was no longer Alice Cooper. He became the character in the story. Nice. Now, yes. little did I know that that was going to really teach me a lot. It was going to come in very handy, you know, a bunch of years later when Paul O'Neill was going to bring all his characters to life. I know how to do this with you. I got you. You know? That's just wonderfully full circle. And of course, you wouldn't suspect being in a full dungeon with Alice Cooper or whichever presentation he has at that point. That's yeah, that's incredible. And, you know, and again, it's like it's so bizarre because, you know, my newfound infatuation with Leonard Bernstein, you know, back mm-hmm. then we were doing, you know, a lot of the West Side Story pieces in Alice's show. And that was the full theatrical thing that he had going on. It was like no boundaries, no worries. You know, we're going to do, you know, like when you're a jet, you're a jet, you know, that song, you know, <laughs> nice. scene in West Side Story. And we're going to yeah. do it. Alice is going to pull a switch played out on me at Wembley Arena. This is cool. You know, this isn't traditional rock and roll. That's why Alice is who Alice is. And obviously it stayed with me. It was an incredible education. And then, you know, when Paul was bringing these characters to life, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's why I'm your MD, dude. I got you. I know how to help you with this. Too cool. Yeah, really cool. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. When you're a jet, let them do what they can. Little boy, you got friends, you're a family man. The jets are in here, you're always well respected. You're never alone, when company's expected, you're well protected. Here come the jets, a bad out of this. One gets in our way, one don't feel so well. I had heard or read somewhere, by the way, and I need to track this down, but I had heard or read that Leonard Bernstein started off as a Bernstein, but then he started referring to himself as Bernstein to associate himself with some of the other greater and more well-known people who had the Stein as the end of their name. But that's what I have to track down. Yeah, what I read in the biography was that his parents came from the Ukraine, and in that region it was Bernstein. Ah, And they immigrated to Europe, or, or I forget exactly where in Europe, but they made it into the European area, and they changed it to Bernstein. That's the one. So one of us is probably right. I don't know. I'm just remembering what I read in the book. But talk about a fascinating individual and like just an incredible talent. And all these years later, just still really relevant, really important. And every time I read the book or watch a documentary on him, I learn more and more about this art form that I'm just still a student of. 
Oh, truly. And, and he's one of those wonderful, you know, like Aaron Copeland or some of these other mm-hmm. people that gives us that wonderful bridge between classical or orchestral type music and uh, pop. And so that's just beautiful. And TSO does that as exactly. well. I, mean, I wouldn't call exactly. it pop at all, but it's rock. No, but it, it yeah. bridges the two genres. That's right. You know? I mean, Absolutely. You know, Aaron Copeland was his mentor. You yep. know, and he yep. said, you know, Aaron Copeland, again, according to his biography, kept saying, you need to be a conductor, you know. And he would go up to Tanglewood up in New England and conduct the orchestra there and then finally he broke in. He was, I think, the first American conductor to lead the New York Philharmonic. But his passion was composition. And then you take apart the pieces in West Side Story, it's like, holy, good Lord, this is deep. Yeah, true. And it's just, again, very Paul O'Neill. Why? Because just like Bernstein, Paul was a student of all of the art. Not one particular genre, not one particular style. Why would you paint yourself into that corner when there's so much amazing music out there? Yes. With TSO, what is something that, oh, you know, whether it was last year's tour or even 10 years ago, something that they added, which you either said, forget about it, I can't wait to do that, or even the flip side of that coin, that's impossible, forget about it. Yeah. One of the things that jumps out of my memory is when Paul said that he's going to drop some big structure out of the ceiling and it's going to shoot pyro over the audience. (laughs) I'm like... Dude, <laughs> remember the movie when we were kids, A Bridge Too Far? Mm, I don't know. Remember you know, Great like White? There was a couple things that he would say, and we'd all look at each other and go, you know, like Scooby-Doo, rut-row. Uh, <laughs> right. But listen, we all learned that if he thinks it up, let's kick the tires on it. Let, let's see it through, you know, and it's always worked out. Nice. I was telling folks in a staff meeting the other day, and they weren't aware of this, one of the things which makes a TSO performance local beyond landing in Ontario every winter is that every single city that the band appears in, a local charity receives at least a dollar of each ticket, and that's roughly nine dollars or $10,000 in Ontario alone each visit. Please talk about how this act of kindness and recognition started. This is Paul O'Neill as well, yes? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, look, when I met Paul... We'd be walking through New York City, you know, 85, 86, 87, whatever year it was, you know, 95, (laughs) don't matter. (laughs) And every time, literally every time I turned around, I'd be talking to him. I'd look to my left. He's no longer there. I over my shoulder. He's 10 feet behind me, and he's handing somebody a $5 bill, $10 bill, whatever he had in his pocket, Mm. you know. And none of my business. I was just, all right, cool. I'll wait for you, dude, you know. And then one day we were just talking about it, and I'm like, you know, that's really sweet what you're doing. I mean, it's really very kind. And he goes, you know, like the $10 bill is not going to change my life if I give it to somebody else, but it may change that person's day, evening, whatever. And maybe, maybe give them a chance at a better tomorrow. I was like, you know what? You're a good dude. So we start touring in 99 and these shows sold out in minutes. And Paul said, I want to make sure that the community, we show how much we do appreciate them. And his wife is the same way. His daughter's the same way. All the O'Neills, they're all the same. Philanthropic, generous, incredible people. And he said, every person who buys a ticket for this show is putting a dollar back into the community. Now, that was 99. Somebody told me that we've sold 18 million tickets over the years. So when you say a dollar is not going to really make a difference, uh, Mm, well, mm, yeah, kind of, you know. (laughs) Check your math. It's it's the consistency, you know. He didn't talk about it and do it once. He didn't talk about it and not do it. He talked about it once and has been doing it ever since without talking about it. So I appreciate you bringing that up, but that's who the O'Neills are. And, you know, talk about people who talk about changing the world, 
they're doing something, you know, albeit a dollar at a time, but it is making a difference. Lives are better because of the O'Neills and Paul's vision and everything that goes along with it. And that's part of what I love about my job. We're not just coming into town. Listen, you know how much I love Ontario. Yep. You know, it's yeah. hallowed ground for me, dude. It's Cal Jam 1 Cal and 2. Cal Jam, there's a share poster. Yeah, this is my share poster, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, I know that, like you just said, you know, maybe nine, ten thousand people each show, two shows that day. Twenty grand that, oh, that one day is yeah, going right. to go to a charity and help out. Incredible. I missed my share poster, by the way. It was not there last year. Oh, no. Oh, no. It is no longer oh. a shared dressing room. Uh, if I could turn Sorry. back time. Hmm. I know, dude. And my wife is heartbroken because my wife loves share. Like, really? <laughs> I can't perform like this. <laughs> I've been speaking with Trans-Siberian Orchestra's Al Petrelli. Again, a conversation I look forward to every year. And this year, once again, Trans-Siberian Orchestra is touring the Ghosts of Christmas Eve with afternoon and evening performances December 3rd at the Toyota Arena in Ontario. KVCR is in its fall membership campaign, and amongst the many thank you gifts that we have to offer and a variety of giving levels, we have tickets for either the 3 or 7.30 performance. More at kvcrnews.org or by phone, 877 512-8843, 877-512-8843. or kvcrnews.org slash support. It's because of listener support that we're able to provide the type of programming you can only find in the world of public broadcasting. Thanks again to Al Petrelli and to Alan Rommelfanger with Daybreak Entertainment for setting this up year after year. Here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Duloc, and Sharina Wad. Many past shows can be found through iTunes, Spotify, NPR One, and Google Play, and more still at kvcrnews.org slash arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support. Where you learn something new every day. You're with 91.9 KVCR San Bernardino Riverside online and on mobile devices, streaming live at kvcrnews.org. We are a service of the San Bernardino Community College District.